0: And My trick is I just say what do you call it when you put meat onto a grill and cook it together and if they answer braai I know where they're from.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to episode three of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me Dr. Cameron McIntosh. It's a great privilege to be able to this month our starting month have Medhold and Medicon Instruments support us. As we bring the evidence-based research in rhinoplasty group to the fore. So today I have a very special guest who studied in Harvard. At the moment he's at the University of California, Davis. He was one of the judges at the World Rhinoplasty Day last year. He's the editor-in-chief of the Facial Plastic Surgery and Aesthetic Medicine Journal, which is the main journal for the American Association of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. And there's something very special about this man because we have a common bond in that he has been to su- Southern Africa numerous times. So it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tra- Travis Tollefson to the show. Travis, thanks for your time and thanks for being with us today.
0: Oh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I've, just hearing uh, your, your pronunciations today makes me feel at home. Um, I'm, I feel so at home when I ask people, you know, where are you from? I hear a little bit of an accent and I wonder what commonwealth accent is that? And my trick is I just say, what do you call it when you put meat onto uh, a grill and cook it together? And if they answer braai, I know where they're from. And that's my <laughs>
1: <trick>. <laughs> so Travis, how how do you know about braai? Tell me about that.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. You know, talk about hospitality. So 2006, I started uh, working in Harare Central Hospital in Zimbabwe. And uh, just it was greeted with incredible people from top to bottom, from administrators, to surgeons, to people working in the hospital, and to patients and families. And so we um, we got to enjoy a, a lot of great times together over the last, I guess, wow, two, four, over 14 years now. And even in the tough times in, in Zimbabwe, there's a hospitality that is uh, mm-hmm. above and beyond taking care of people that are visiting and helping. and. Uh, just the community itself, that's that's why I know about Braai and how I, I feel so near and dear to my heart.
1: Oh, well, Travis, that's great, man. And we we so appreciate what you do for us in Africa. Um, who are some of the doctors you're working with in Zimbabwe?
0: Uh, so when I first uh, started, um, we worked with Faith Machumwa, who's a plastic surgeon in Harare, uh, Midian Chinzanga, uh, oral maxillofacial surgeon, and dean of the medical school until just a few years ago. Uh, uh, um, The beautiful part about uh, the pediatric surgery group, everyone has a little bit of a niche. And so we were going in and doing camps or brigades uh, with uh, cleft lip and palate. And it's my passion to work with kids as they grow up into adulthood. And then they get to the point where they can have rhinoplasty and have their final stages. And so I help run the UC Davis cleft and craniofacial team Mm-hmm. And it's something that's uh, been boiling up in me since I was a resident. And uh, my passion has been both here and abroad to be working on that topic. So uh, that's what got me to Zimbabwe. And then just the friends and colleagues, the nurses uh, that I continue to stay in contact with, uh, with to engage in conversations about new patients. And so just a, it's a small world. You know, it's 28 to 36 hours to travel, as you know, uh and if you do that twice a year and you land and stay two to three weeks uh and make an impact I've just learned a ton and it's kind of the education uh uh, around the world I take away much more for my patients here and for my experiences than I delivered and yeah I landed thinking I was going to be giving but I really um
1: was able to just gain so much. Uh, Well Travis I hope that that like inspires a lot of your colleagues to also come and do that. We, we definitely, I know that it's one of the things that as Sourcer, we want to do is try and arrange outreaches for when COVID's finished and people can travel again. Um, so, I mean, we sitting here, and we, we're in awe of someone who's been to Harvard. How did you end up going to Harvard and go and do medicine?
0: I'll tell you. Um, so my goal was to try to establish um, a global surgery fellowship that would allow um, me to take skill sets and technology and ideas and try to make them appropriate for the setting that I would work in. In other words, I'm not trying to go and deliver something that I have and I'm going to force feed it. Instead, I wanted to go in and find out how things are going. And so I spent uh, uh, about a, uh, three weeks in um, in rural Kenya, working at a hospital where I think they do it really well. Where there's European, there's African surgeons, there's uh, American surgeons and there's, everyone's working together and there's no us and they, you know, it's just, we all just work together. And the we is much more powerful than when we start dividing up into us and them. And so Mm. uh, I learned just constantly how I needed to know more. And so that's why I enrolled uh, and to get my master in public health and emphasized trying to learn from those that do global health and global surgery. If COVID has done anything, I'm jumping off topic, but I just want to say it. uh, It's made the world so much more clear to me that uh, sitting here in America, I'm in California, uh, it really equalized everything and made it so that, you know, rationing and worrying Mm -hmm. and having the concern of all of us thinking about our families, what's most important to us, no matter what city, country, region, state we were living in, we all felt the same and still feel the same, uh, mm. knowing the, the COVID-19 impact that it's had worldwide. I think that equalizers had one good thing, and that's that a lot of the ego of, well, we mm-hmm. can teach someone else because we have this. has been We had our feet knocked mm-hmm. out from under us. And um, I enjoy the idea that, we're all kind of working together right now uh, against a common foe because togetherness is something we haven't had that much of that lately. So,
1: it's so true, eh? and you know that's what brought us together with starting our webinars and then the world rhinoplasty day. This whole togetherness thing. Now, I want to talk to you about the journal and publishing and stuff, but before that, there's another thing I want to chat about, and it's almost rolling against what you've just said about us being together, and this is this preservation structural rhinoplasty almost a fight. Tell me your thoughts about it. Yeah. So
0: um, I took over the journal editor spot and some of the first things that I saw coming through were discussions from the traditional structural rhinoplasty, the use of cartilage grafting, build up to create definition, uh, Joseph hump reduction type uh, uh, techniques to something that I'd learned about, uh, you know, 18 years ago with some of the Mexican colleagues that would come up and, and lecture, um, kind of all based off of old work from Eugene Kern at Mayo. And if you look at the historical background, the things that I picked out watching preservation rhino posse techniques be presented, I just didn't actually incorporate them at all into my practice and didn't see uh, colleagues doing that either. So now watching uh, those that have been hot, embedded in very successful use of structural rhinoplasty and those that have been able to use dorsal preservation rhinoplasty techniques, both getting incredibly great results and just being masters. Now coming together and not not necessarily um, fighting, but just having these ideas about what's the safest way to approach this and technologically, who can afford the piezoelectric saws. And more importantly, if you do have a piezoelectric saw, what uh, if you do your osteotomy, do you have to throw that away? In some countries, you have to throw them away. Other places, you can re-sterilize, mm-hmm. so there's mm-hmm. cost involved. Now, I'm just watching interesting papers come through where people are jumping and going to the other side a bit, and it's incredible to watch the advancement that's happened. Um, I, we're going to be having a special topics to discuss just this, and what we want to do is make sure that we have the old guard, I'll call them, Mm-hmm. Wilson Duiz in Brazil and others from Europe uh, in Turkey. I mean, it's incredible the people that have been contributing this whole time. And now there's new wave of people coming through. And you know what? The only thing I can do by saying names or countries is miss people, you know, because yeah. the contributions are so extensive. I thought with the World Rhinoplasty Day, one of the biz- biggest successes was just the knowledge that as the t- clock ticks the expertise region by region is expanded. And Mm -hmm. if we pay attention and focus in on just our region or our techniques, Mm -hmm. we're gonna miss out on all these Mm -hmm. nuances. And that's really the brilliant part about you bringing together the people that you did.
1: So I had a very interesting discussion with Stuart in theater today about what you're talking about. And I'd almost venture to say, a patient doesn't really care too much if you are doing dorsal preservation or, or structural rhinoplasty, that they want a good result. And there's been amazing results with structural rhinoplasty and with dorsal preservation. In a way, I think, well, why should there even be an argument between the two? Be good at what you're doing. Do the best for your patients. So, yeah, I'm I'm glad that this is coming up because it's going to be very interesting to read that specific journal, I mean, that publication on... The argument, um, as
0: well. I'm a... You know it's amazing the uh, quality of discussion going on in some of the commentaries and editorial uh, that are being submitted in to discuss these things because some of it's just about uh, a lack of understanding about what the techniques are, and and then the second part is terminology, right? Mm-hmm. If you can, two people can call the same thing an absolutely different name. Or they say they're doing something and it's a little bit different because we all have our nuances. Mm -hmm. So I think it's uh, the common ground is getting a common vocabulary so that we can actually discuss what works and what doesn't, not just on the words that we use, but on what actually they represent. And that's going to be the coming next year or two, I think, is seeing videos. And I think this is a highlight, you know, small two minute surgical videos about how you treat the septum. Where the septum is incised, how you calculate and create your engineering principles to create the amount of uh, dorsal change that you'd like. These nuances have to come out, and everybody has their take on it. So that's what I'm most excited about.
1: So, so Travis, okay, now you used to be doing like 200 rhinoplasties a year. How many are you smashing them out? You've kind of moved a little bit into. In a way, you know, the Chinese saying of, you know, give a man a fish to eat he eats for a day, teach him how to fish eat for a lifetime. You've now moved into more an academic route in a way. Um, how did you end up with Miguel and Sam and a few others starting the evidence-based research and rhinoplasty group, and why did you do that?
0: Well, let me give credit where credit is due. Um, Miguel and Sam, they really lead the way. I... Um, My contributions in this are that um, I think I have a very neutral, I hope I do, that's my goal. Um, I wanna have a neutral tone when it comes to content because what they care about the most and what I care about the most is exactly the same. And that's to have evidence to help support making a decision that will affect a clinical outcome. We all want a patient to write a review about the incredible care they received And we all want a post-operative result five years later that looks looks and functions incredibly Mm -hmm. and i'd say that when i worked on the clinical practice guidelines with a multidisciplinary crew of 20 different people um, this was all um, through the american academy of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery and the american academy of otolaryngology we brought in plastic surgeons sleep scientists psychiatrists um, and all of us got together to kind of line up the evidence that was known and then what the research should do. And then, you know, people like Miguel and Sam most, they decided, well, let's start cl- doing those projects to start filling the evidence. And I just want to give that credit because I think I'm a good question person. Mm-hmm. I can, If you come to me with what you're interested in, I can help you formulate it into a research question using different formats. I think that may be one of the strengths that I have. And so I hope that through the uh, editor position that I can make sure that one side is not getting more voice than another, and at the same time that I make sure the evidence is the best quality, which is so hard in rhinoplasty. There's no randomized controlled trials.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, I know we, I mean, I speak for so many people around the world. It's fantastic that you guys have started that. Um, as as I think about this, and, and this really want to get into the meat of this journal and publications and stuff, so I must tell you a little funny story. So about four years ago is the first time I went to visit Rod Rorick over in Dallas, and it was a phenomenal two weeks. I mean, the man is busy, and he does so much, and he edits the PRS journal. And after two weeks, we were, we, I was in theater with him and uh, I said to him, I said, Prof, now, I don't know if funny, but Where do you find time for all this academics? Now, bear in mind, my little worldview was in, in South Africa, probably in Africa, academics is at universities. If you're in private practice, you're working in private practice. And here is a man who's in private practice and the editor of the biggest plastics journal in the world. So asking this question, he puts a scalpel down, he says, Cameron, academia is a state of mind. And that just like opened my eyes. And through that, we started saucer, and we're now really into wanting to get stuck into education and academics. So how, what, if for the listeners who might not be in a first world developed country like the United States or Germany, etc. What are the first steps that you would tell somebody in Zimbabwe or in South Africa to say, so you want to start publishing? What do you do? Such a great
0: comment and question. And I love the quote that you just stated as well. I mean, if you simplify that even more, I think the phrase academics is a state of mind really reflects that it comes to your ability to see a problem and to look at it from other people's perspectives and then to create a comparative study. Uh, to create a question that you want to answer and then, like everything, um, if you don't have enough power to answer the question, what assumptions do you make? So, I think a collegial group of people to bounce ideas off of are the number one thing to have. I'm very impressed with a Canadian group of cleft surgeons who, I'll I'll remain uh, without saying their names, I don't want to give them too much credit, but they're my friends. <laughs> they, uh, they get together and they bring their last 10 results, something like this. And then they show their results kind of blindly and then criticize them. And then they talk about what things each of them are doing a little differently. Now, this is not something I've been a part of directly, but I just heard their stories about it. I just think it's brilliant to think of if you take a group of, of your colleagues that you respect and let's say we're out of COVID and we can do this in person. And then you have something bonding to, to do In Canada, they ski, you know, you could safari or go mountain biking with Cameron, <laughs> you know, there'd be something to do together. But the whole goal would be to bring together people to see what outcomes they're getting, not their best, not their worst, but their last 10. And then sitting down and talking about, well, I started to do this look what's happened to my outcomes at a year and at two years, uh, and then work together to get better. Um, And this can be done virtually as well. That then I think builds into asking research questions. Um, And that's where I would start. And I'm trying to start that here in the US with some some cleft rhinoplasty related topics. And I think the most important thing is having a diverse set of people. Because if everybody thinks like you, Mm-hmm. Uh, this is one of my dad's uh, favorite quotes. You know, he he just talks about how you can never grow uh, if mm-hmm. you don't
1: if you don't branch out. So that's, I think, the starting point. Well, that's interesting because actually this morning, Stuart Gilden and I were operating, and he's left-handed. I'm right-handed. So we stand on opposite sides of the patients. And for each step of the surgery, we're asking each other questions. Why would you do this? Are you not doing this? It is great. And I, I really like what you're saying. I think we're going to have to start something like that. Um, so, talk to me a little bit about your journal. How did you end up becoming the Editor-in-Chief? Um, I will
0: shorten this to as, as, as simple as possible, but uh, in 1998, I started my residency. I was being trained by Dave Crete, who came out of Seattle and Oregon's residency and fellowship programs. Wayne Larrabee started the journal and Wayne was one of Dave's mentors. Wayne and I went to China and worked in Western China in a place called Lanzhou. Uh, We saw an incredible need, and um, I just continued to go back to different provinces in China with Wayne and with his support while I watched him uh, edit the journal. Wayne, uh, when he handed off to John Rhee, who's another uh, extraordinary, talk about being efficient and getting things done. Um, And so when John took that over, I was um, involved in a lot of things where I would work with him as well. And so then when it came time for the journal's name change, which went from JAMA facial plastic surgery to facial plastic surgery and aesthetic medicine. um, And that was an intentional change to include some of the aesthetic or cosmetic components of rhinoplasty, of aging face surgery, of all the other aspects. So they asked me if I could take it on. Uh, When I give advice now to young people, resident students, I always tell them, look, say yes to everything. Your first five, 10 years, 12 years, just say yes, do it. Whatever it is, do it. You never know what you'll jump on and have the ride of your life enjoying and learning. But at some point, you have to learn to say no to something so that you can do the best you can at the other things. And I haven't quite learned that yet. Uh, but don't worry. I'm someday going to grow up. Um, the journal is the work of a lifetime. It's the, the hardest thing I've ever done. The quantity of time and effort it takes when I'm in it though, I'm in that zone, the same zone you were in with Stuart this morning when you're facing the rhinoplasty and you're too bouncing back and forth, you don't want to be anywhere else. And you know, when you're in that zone, you got to keep doing it. And so, I uh, I am uh, now, boy, I don't know. Am I six months in, something like that? And we're just how many,
1: um, how many applications do you get for uh, people wanting to get published? How how does how does it work? Yeah, well, uh, so in twenty twenty,
0: with COVID nineteen, the impact factor had gone up um, over John Ree and Wayne's work to uh, the highest impact factor of any otolaryngology journal. Unbelievable. You never want to take over the New England, I, I can't give a Patriots League, uh, sorry, a Champions League's uh, football or soccer reference right now. I guess it would be Manchester United, I don't know. <laughs> I can't give a rugby uh, reference, so I'll have to do the New England Patriots, but you can't take that over as a coach after Tom Brady leaves and yeah. Belichick retires and think you're going to continue to win Super Bowl after Super Bowl, right? So uh, I jumped on a ship that's at the uh, very peak and we're going to keep pushing to make it continue as great as it's been. Um, the journals during COVID-19 skyrocketed in submissions because people had time. So
1: mm-hmm. we had
0: over 600 submissions and um, it's not a thick journal and it's, um, we're working on getting our page limits to be increased but we're just right now going to be concentrating on things like quality and simplification. I want Cam I want to pick up the journal or online to click on it and to get the information simply. I don't want them to spend three hours trying to dig through and understand the nuances. I want them to get the content and then be able to go in and look at the videos um, online. And we're really pushing towards having the video augment and supplement the ideas because you and I both know when we want to know something, we read it. But boy, when we see it,
1: you digest yeah. it. So how do people get hold of this journal? How do they subscribe? What's the easiest way for people around the world to, to get it? Great great, great news
0: is, uh, and we are making online for the first month or two, online first. So if you go to the, uh, the website, uh, if you just type in facial plastic surgery and aesthetic medicine, immediately you'll go to a Marion Libre uh, publisher website. Online only or online first is one of the tabs. When you click it, all of those are free. And um, those are a good taster for the things. Like, let's see, this month with the COVID vaccine, there was a concern about uh, hyaluronic acid fillers creating hyperinflammation and swelling and complications. And so we have a, a commentary and a few people making. Um, Editorial discussions about what their experience has been and how the vaccine might influence or affect people. So we're trying to keep those kind of things available, free as available uh, uh, for a few months, and then the subscription process for anyone as an American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery member. That's a free uh, journal sub- subscription, and then we also are working with libraries around the world uh, to make it so that it's within their academic centers available, and so. Those three aspects, uh, if there's anyone out there that has an interest and is having trouble with the subscription process, I'd like to just open my email up to you to send me a note, and I'll be happy to help get that
1: um, worked out for you. That's awesome. And Travis, tell me, what can you take us through this month's um, edition? What have you got lined up for this month?
0: All right, so I'm very excited. Um, one of the things we've done is we've divided up the journal itself into six sections. Um, These are sections that facial plastic and reconstructive surgeons can agree on that are both from the reconstructive and the aesthetic side. So obviously we start with rhinoplasty and then we have an aesthetic section that includes everything from aging face to even like the uh, um, uh, non-surgical rhinoplasty techniques, which are really um, a controversial and hot topic. we go to facial nerve because uh, in the um, the journal's last five years, facial nerve has just skyrocketed in people's interest. Um, and, and then we go to reconstruction, which includes everything from head and neck reconstruction uh, all the way through the free free tissue transfer to smaller reconstructions. You know, skin cancer. I know is a um, my South African uh, friends talk about the quantity of of, uh, ears and noses, outdoorsmen that then come Mm. in with squamous cells and basal cells. So reconstructions of these is the the fourth category. We have an editorial and viewpoint section. And then we have a pediatric and craniofacial section, which is really, as I said earlier, something that uh, I'm really interested in and hope to continue to develop with our crew. So by having those sections, the submissions that come through come in is either a surgical pearl. Uh, so one of our surgical pearls this month is kind of a hot topic of treating the buccal fat to help change the shape of the face. So we have a surgical video of a surgeon from Chicago doing a buccal fat sculpting or reduction procedure. Uh, it's short, you know, less than two minutes with a description. But most of the content is uh, either systematic reviews, meta-analysis, or original articles. Um, and each of those sections that I talked about have those topics that can be uh, covered in those sections.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it's such a resource. So, um, in terms of resource, the the, the 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 journal for possibly poorer countries, um, a thought I have is the International Federation of Facial Plastic Surgery. Perhaps you're not know, the right guy to ask us to, but would they be? Are they supportive of the journals to try and? get facial plastics known around the world and and help train surgeons?
0: I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I was just looking through and having discussions. I know they just had a board meeting. And um, we have great resources and we uh, have our sister uh, journal that uh, colleagues, uh, Anthony Sclafani and um, Alwyn D'Souza are the editors for facial plastic surgery. It's been a resource for uh, years and years, and the two of us together are kind of working to make sure that we raise the bar and also create access for just as you described. Um, when it comes down to it, having editors that uh, have a common goal, uh, when you that wanna push forward and make it so that we're, you know, it's not open access, but there is a, a mm-hmm. ability for us to both publish with open access, it just costs the writer more to publish if they're gonna to have to pay for open access. So uh, I think finding ways for the subscriptions to be appropriately priced uh, in all of these journals so that our colleagues can have access. And uh, I'm committed to this. It's There's nothing like, you know, if, if someone's going on Google typing in a question and then they get their response back on the, the highest hit in Google, then they're missing out on where the real evidence lies because it's not always the popularity where the evidence mm. is. Mm. So we need to have the highest level of evidence and have it available to as many people as possible.
1: Oh, but you guys are doing a great job on that. Eh? It's, it's great. Uh, I'm looking forward to being able to being an, a, an international South African member of is reading it myself. Yeah. Um, Travis, tell me, uh, let me try and think of another question. So one of the the things that helped me with being able to finally sit these international board exams was being able to travel and uh, get across to the states and to Europe and see the great surgeons. But it's so good to hear that you coming out to South Africa, I mean to to Zimbabwe, and I know uh, Peter Adamson and Kofi do a lot of work as well. But how can we tell people more about the opportunities for outreach within the African continent? Is there a portal that people can go to or how could we advise somebody if if both a surgeon in, in the country looking to train better or there might be cases they want to refer? Is there anything like that that I can tell people about?
0: Yeah, yeah. So what you're describing is a clearinghouse or a an ability to have a, a Common place where you go to, and you can see who's working where, what teams are involved. And it's funny you bring up Peter Adamson because um, what an incredible human, someone whose uh, ability to be in a room and be uh, want to pull forth ideas from everyone around him and to kind of mediate. And I, I first went to Russia with Peter. Uh, and worked in um, Saratov City and then in Ekaterinburg with a variety of Russian surgeons that I, again, learned tons from. Um, it's ironic that we consider it a service to go and contribute when um, a- around the globe, I think the answer to your question is uh, communication to on a, on a one-to-one basis. So you mentioned Kofi and uh, his work in in Ghana, but Kofi also works in Rwanda with a friend and um, um, colleague of mine. And they've been working in a a hospital outside of Kigali, doing some of the more major reconstructions for amyloblastoma and other cancers, where they're doing free microvascular free tissue transfer uh, with uh, the Rwandan surgeons. And uh, my colleague and close friend, Dave Shea, lives in Rwanda for up to four months a year with his wife and three kids. And this is this is the modern era of global surgery. It's mm-hmm. if you're going to contribute, put your boots on the ground, make colleagues and then work together. It's not uh, short term mission work doesn't really have a, a role, in in my opinion, for most things. Um Having a passion and a desire to help uh, means that you have to make connection to surgeons that are working in the exact environment that you're trying to help in, and then contributing in the way that they would like for you to contribute. Mm. Uh, It's less paternalistic. It's more synergistic. Mm. And Mm. I think um, for that reason, it's important to link up with names like you've mentioned where that's kind of the model. Mm.
1: Sure, Travis, I know you you're a busy man. Eh? I've taken half an hour of your time away from editing the journal. And it's just so inspiring to to I mean you 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 walking the talk. You're not just talking about it, you're actually getting out there and doing it. And I think your contribution through the academics is gonna go so it's gonna echo in years to come. So I just wanna salute you for that and thank you for that. Um and you know it's great that we've we've been able to have you three guys of the first ever Rhinoplasty podcast, and you've ended this first month with a bang. Eh? So I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. Kim,
0: before you step away, I just, you, you, you should know how much it's meant to us here in Western uh, US. Um, Sam and I, when we first talked about what you were doing and the effort you're putting in, I think the question comes how do you do it? And where do you find the time? <sighs> And, you know, this passion of yours comes out uh, in the World Rhinoplasty Day when you sat on the stage and you were having the discussions in between the speakers and you hadn't slept and you were barely snacking and drinking on things. You know, when something's extraordinarily important to you, it doesn't feel like work. Mm -hmm. And uh, you inspire me to continue. And I promise that uh, my work on the evidence within the journal itself will continue to be uh, fueled by people like you who just wanted us to rise to the top here. So let's keep fighting forward and and making improvements. And the common denominator here is people from whatever country, whatever belief system, whatever camp of surgical training, whatever pedigree of who trained you or how you do it, no matter what, there's a common denominator and that's to try to get better at something that we love at probably the hardest surgery that Mm -hmm. a facial plastic surgeon can do uh, and to become truly expert on. There's just so few people that have been able to have re- replicate over mm. and over incredible mm. standardized results. And uh, So I, I tip my hat to you, and thanks for having me on this today.
1: That's great. Well, next month we actually got to get the the medalists from World Rhinoplasty. We've got Jeff and Roxana and Vitali and even Bauman as our chief judge. So I'm really looking forward to interviewing them as well. Um, so Travis thanks really appreciate it have a great rest of the day and thank you for your time